You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm Mark Brisley, Head of Dynamic Funds. And you know, given the circumstances in which the world has had to adapt in 2020, the unfamiliar conditions that have changed our routines, personal and professional activities and the way we work, it's not surprising that we think more and more about how we are processing these conditions and ultimately how our brains are functioning with such tumultuous change. I recently had the chance to sit down and talk with today's guest and discuss insights about how to thwart burnout, increase productivity, improve motivation, and ensure your day and time was optimally designed to make maximal use of our own brains. The tips and techniques shared in this discussion busted myths, challenged conventional wisdom, and provided a comprehensive framework for how to think of and use our own brain newly. Today we discuss with Dr. Bryn Weingart some of these pointers from her proprietary research that will be included in her upcoming book, WFH, a brain-based perspective for redesigning your workday to feel more motivated and get more done. Consistently ranked in the top three in the world for human behavior experts working in business, Dr. Bryn is a multiple award-winning professor, speaker, expert in business brain sciences, and specializes in formulating motivation, productivity, and peak performance tips from frontier neuroscience research. And we're very pleased to have her join us today. Dr. Bryn, welcome. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Seeing as how brain science is a topical area for people these days, especially as, you know, we've all been forced to work from home, redesign our workday, deal with unprecedented levels of stress and strife, what are some of the surprising issues you've witnessed workers dealing with lately? It's such a good question. And I think, you know, when we look at the research, there's an array, of course, of responses from people who sort of suddenly found themselves at home uh, in, you know, such a contextless circumstance. So as they were thrust from the office space to their makeshift offices, the array of emotions and the challenges that people have expressed really do run the gamut. But I think, you know, some of the major ones have stood out. There's been sort of these top three that I talk about regularly with people, people who write to us and tweet to us. Uh, and one of the first ones is Zoom fatigue. Uh, and Zoom fatigue is very real. It is a challenge with how our brains process social information. And the original research actually on Zoom fatigue came out in 2014 when there was anxiety and depression and um, you know body dysmorphic type issues with teenagers who were using FaceTime, so when Apple launched FaceTime. And what we figured out was that effectively they felt self-conscious all the time. When they were using FaceTime, they were on camera, they were on display, and they weren't interacting with people in a normal way because they were way too conscious of themselves. And so what we saw was things like anxiety peak, uh, depression peak, 
their, again, you know, their sort of sense of self and their nitpickiness around their own body and their body image, that started to really dip in terms of the metrics. And so, you know, that first kind of foray into the research really helps us to understand what we started to see with this pandemic as people worked from home, which was a Zoom fatigue that included a self-consciousness. And so a lot of companies, as an example, were using Zoom to try to increase a sense of camaraderie and, and togetherness and connectedness and decrease feelings of loneliness and isolation. But in actual fact, the way that people were receiving it uh, was that they were on display, they were feeling self-conscious, they were feeling a lot more, uh, a lot less confident and a lot more sort of, uh, you know, dissociated even from the content that they were producing. And so, you know, we saw this this whole cascade of effects, basically, that, that are associated with Zoom fatigue and, again, that, you know, FaceTime fatigue we saw in teens and in the early 2010s. And so that was the first one, you know, is that people were really struggling with being on camera all the time, effectively. Uh, the second one was just that, you know, and we talked about this at the Q3 Town Hall and a little bit uh, at your NSM this year, but the idea that in VUCA circumstances, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous circumstances, which a, a global pandemic certainly falls under that category, people's brains go haywire and so your brain isn't working the, sort of the normal way and under duress people's emotions are different their decision making skills are different for sure how they feel uh, in general is you know depressed and so ultimately that sort of we're now not dealing with per a person under normal circumstances. We're now dealing with a brain that is stressed uh, with all kinds of other factors. And then the third thing, and this is, you know, we have great research that shows that there was about 500 emotions that humans can feel that we can name uh, in psychology and certainly in the neuroscience, but people can only usually name about 11 of them. And the emotion that they weren't naming uh, was grief. And what they were feeling and what the, a lot of this, you know, stress and emotion that they were not able to grapple with was really because the grief that they were feeling was over the loss of a life that once was, over the office that once was, over the routines and patterns and behavior that once was. And so when you start to realize that that's what people are going through is in fact high levels of grief. Um, which has very known and knowable stages uh, and is very stressful for people, you know, that just compounded kind of what we were starting to see, which was this constellation of adrenal fatigue and burnout and depression, anxiety. I mean, people just not, not coping as well as you might anticipate somebody who is otherwise in a comfortable home circumstance, you know, is otherwise finding their day sort of more up to them, right? Like they have a lot more control theoretically over their day. So what we expected to see, which was, you know, you're comfortable, you're in your home, your day is your own, you get to make it up. There's a lot of autonomy in that. In actual fact, we saw opposite. We saw people completely overwhelmed, feeling Zoom fatigue and going through, you know, significant grief effectively at, at the loss of, of yesteryear of the life that was pre-pandemic. Yeah, you know, thinking about that, I think back to when this all started, when we first found out that, you know, we were going to probably be in a work from home environment for a while. And I know when I think about my own team, 
there was probably two types of people. The person that said, I got this and this, this will be great and I'll, I'll get into a zone. And there were other people that probably were, I, I can't do this. And as it's unfolded, people have probably come to the conclusion that it's true or not true. So question is, what are some of the myths or misconceptions that you witnessed workers having to deal with as this has unfolded since, you know, really looking back to March until the current time period? One of the sort of fundamental truths of a human's brain's ability to predict time and space and themselves. It's, it's very interesting that actually we're not very good at predicting uh, ourselves in the future. So how much energy we will have, how much motivation, how much productivity, uh, how we will feel and how much time we will have. We also don't predict time very well. And so what's very interesting is that, especially as you know, I mentioned earlier, people, we expected people to feel when they were working from home and they were suddenly sort of thrust into this circumstance that they would find a lot of choice and a lot of control and autonomy in their circumstance, in this circumstance of being able to work from home. But in actual fact, what we found was what we call expectancy violations with having overestimated how much they could get done in one day and how much they could get done in a week, as an example. And what that does is when, as an example, you know, you put your list together the night before, best practice, we talked about this at your NSM, you, you have everything you want to do the next day, you know what that list looks like, and people make these laundry lists for themselves, the stuff that they want to get done the next day. And then the next morning comes full of, you know, they've got their coffee, they're ready to go. What happens? They get a fraction of what they wanted to get done, done. And in that day, they look at at the end of the day and they're disappointed in themselves. And that expectancy violation, and, and you know, it's exactly as it sounds, like a violation of what you expected from yourself in terms of your ability to produce and your efficiency and your effectiveness, creates a circumstance where you are uh, disappointed in yourself, where you are uh, much less confident in your, in your core competencies and in your intrinsic motivation and that disappointment leads to further levels of, if not self-consciousness, uh, you know, disappointment in yourself and a, a real feeling of, you know, listlessness, but also of a lack of skill. Like people start almost felt like beginners again, like they were on a learning curve for how to manage themselves and their time and their resources back in their own, you know, in this new work environment. And it wasn't netting good results. It was creating sort of this a further compound to this depressive circumstance where, you know, they just don't feel like they have self-efficacy. And then that serves to increase, you know, adrenal fatigue and burnout. It decreases your ability to manufacture serotonin, which of course is more or less the happy hormone. It decreases those dopamine feedback loops, which is, you know, the do it, the get it done hormone. Uh, and so we started to see real adrenal fatigue and burnout, anxiety, depression, and, and you know, just effectively decreases in motivation. And so it was this vicious cycle effectively that, you know, people overestimate what you can get done and you think that that's just the mark of a high achiever, but in actual fact, it's the mark of somebody who's created a self-handicapping circumstance where they will ultimately not be able to, not only not be able to get everything done they want to, but later they will kick themselves and they will berate themselves and that will create a circumstance where they're way less motivated and way more anxious. And so you can imagine how that at the kind of neurophysiological level is like a cocktail of disaster for future productivity 
and certainly as we look at you know sustainable work habits. That's really interesting, this overestimation of what you can accomplish in a day. One of the things I think we all hear is since I've gone to a work from home environment, I'm, I'm working more. I, I can't pull myself away from the desk or uh, you know, not having that commuting time is, is making me stay in a, in a work environment for a longer period of time. And I, I often hear people say, and I can't turn it off. And so from a brain science perspective, is that true? Is that real? Is that what's happening to people? When your office is your house, you never leave the office, right? I mean, you could work all hours of the day. And so people do experience what contributes also to the Zoom fatigue, but is what we consider, this isn't a word, but it's contextlessness. Like there's no context around, you know, when to work and when not to work. And in some ways, too much choice, too much control, too much autonomy, not enough structure doesn't create a happier person. It creates a person who is, you know, sort of uh, lost and rudderless. And, and, and some people revel in that, you know, they just love that, but it is very high levels of ambiguity. And everyone has varying levels of tolerance for ambiguity, for how much they can cope with, you know, just sort of a a blank slate, if you will, of a day, right? You've got 24 hours at your disposal. You can sleep when you want, eat when you want, work when you want. And, And to your point, you know, what people, what we found was that, yeah, people were just working longer hours because there is only so much Netflix you can watch and there was only so many walks you could go on. And so, you know, ultimately that was the challenge was that their, their home was their office and they never left it. And so, you know, certainly quarantine was the worst time, but we even saw this through the summer, which is that, yeah, if you're there, why not pick it up? And what we especially saw is you know, if not formalized work happening in the evenings into the wee hours of the night, as an example, we saw much more in the way of kind of messaging systems, Slack teams, uh, you know, those types of messenger uh, communications through staff members who were looking for connection and looking for commiseration, um, but, but, you know, really not giving their brains the opportunity to rest and to step away from work and to do something else. And that historically has been what has been brilliant about having an office space you can go to is that, you know, that's a context, it's a circumstance, there's a time frame that is normative, nine to five. Uh, and when you leave, that's when you do your personal things and the other stuff in your life that matters to you, like spend quality time with your kids and go for a run and, you know, fix up, I don't know, fix up your house, whatever it is. And so without that context anymore, yeah, people were starting to find that they were working more hours. They were working into the evenings. They were, you know, working throughout the weekends. I mean, there just really wasn't enough structure and enough context to be able to say, okay, this is where I stop. And that moment of this is where I stop. This is what my day looks like really requires a lot of self-discipline. But there's no shame in not having had that discipline because there's also a lot of guilt associated with not, you know, keeping up with your colleagues and being a good teammate. And certainly, you know, in a VUCA circumstance, that is one where people really do start to, you know, regress to, um, and and it's a good thing. It's a pro-social emotion, but the pro-social emotion is going toward the collective and helping others out and working when others are working and, you know, doing more for the team and picking up more than your end of things. And so people were overextending themselves 
themselves and really, again, starting to feel, you know, yeah, I mean, rudderless and, and it's an unsustainable way to work. And so we saw high levels of anxiety, which we know that anxiety often leads to depression and depression often leads to anxiety. They're comorbid. Uh, so they sort of live together. So if you start to feel a little bit anxious, it, you know, not very far down the line is that whole cascade of neurochemicals that will create a circumstance for negative affect and effectively depressive symptoms. I know a lot of our listeners are going to be thinking, okay, if I have more self-awareness then of what's happening to me, you know, I'm going to be looking for some tips and advice on how to use my brain better through the day. But just before I get to that, and this is somewhat of a personal question, but like many Canadians, uh, a lot of us were used to commuting to the workplace. And for many of us, that was taken away in a, in a more permanent work from home environment. And I think I realized how much of that commuting timeframe was downtime for me, which has been taken away to some extent. What are some of the things in terms of structuring your day that you're seeing that can help people replace that period of time that they may not have even been aware of was so important to kind of decompress from the workplace before getting home and into the family life and, and those types of things? You know, I think that really speaks to almost like a um, the need for like a Pomodoro technique or what we consider to be time blocking, uh, where, you know, I actually advocate that you get up early, but you don't necessarily start work right away. Uh, what you do is, you know, a moment maybe of meditation and where you really do start to connect with, you know, what it was you wanted to get done that you planned to get done. Uh, and same on the back end of your work day is that you would take that time to, if not meditate or visualize or something that formal, that you take that time to sort of, to your point, decompress and change and, and move through context because context lead also to, you know, personas and normative behaviors and therefore normative emotions. And so as an example, you know, the difference between feeling kind of revved up and geared up and amped up to do your day. And then, you know, there's got to be this, there's a gateway you've got to pass through in order to be calmer and, you know, start to wind down for the evening and with your family and into bedtime. Um, and, you know, to your question, Mark, I mean, it's not terribly personal, I don't think, because I share it with all of my audienceship, but is the idea that for me, actually the last thing I do in my day is I work out. So I don't work out first because my job is as a knowledge worker, my most important priorities of the day typically require me to think and me to produce information from my brain. And so what I do is I actually work out at the very end of my day and I use that time almost like commuting time as you describe, to change, go through the gateway of changing contexts it also allows, and this brings me to one of my key pointers, because we wouldn't bring you down if we're not going to bring you back up again. Uh, you know, it really allows for your brain to shut off. Uh, there's nothing quite like being fully conscientiously immersed in physical activity to allow your brain to actually relax. And so I use that end of day workout because I don't want to spend my best energy on the treadmill, I want to spend my best energy on the brain work I have to do for the day for my job. But then second to that is it's basically my commute back to family life, back to home life, back to relaxation. And there's truth in, I've, I've often talked about 
you know, there's this inverse relationship between brain and body. And what happens is, is that, you know, many people believe they're resting their brain when they're sleeping. But in actual fact, while you're sleeping is when your brain comes alive and vice versa. Despite how it feels while you're awake, your brain actually takes second fiddle to your body's energy requirements and oxygen requirements and water requirements. And so despite how it feels, uh, you feel like you're, when you're sleeping, you feel like your brain is off. And when you're awake, you feel like your brain is on. It's actually the inverse. And so in wakeful hours, the moments that you spend exercising, and I mean even just a light walk, those are the moments, in fact, that your brain gets to go offline and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to properly rejuvenate myself. And so the body is using up the good energy certainly and the, and the oxygen but that's really when your brain gets to kind of you know take that moment to um i want to say it's a refractory period but almost like zone out uh, daydream you know it doesn't have to think of anything actively your body is going through the motions and you're sort of on autopilot and those are really valuable it's a very valuable brain space for akin akin to meditation and visualization for in wakeful hours renewing a lot of those neurochemicals that you would have depleted through your working hours so you know exercise of any kind is what i consider to be like movement is magic for for the brain and it's because the minute that the body gets going the brain says okay i can take a beat i can you know i can daydream i don't have to do anything exceptional here and that's when we see that refractory period. That's when we see those neurochemicals replenish. It's when we see parts of the brain that are associated with pleasure and with, uh, you know, replenishment. Those are the parts of the brain that start to become active. Um, and so whether it feels like it or not, and this is another thing, I mean, the human experience is that like, no, I don't want to go to the gym. I don't want to have to go and do, you know, exercise that feels like exertion after the end of a long day. Actually, your your brain craves it at a at a level that you don't have conscious access to, but it's very much required, and that is, um, to your point, what I use as commute time, basically from my work brain to my home and restful brain. You have shared some really eye opening thoughts with me around the importance of first of all sleep, uh, but also diet. Something that we probably don't think too much when we think about how our own brains are working. So let's get right into the every every parent's favorite subject, which I think we've all come to a level of self-awareness has probably not been good for us either, uh, mobile technologies. And uh, your comment that your mobile phone is not your brain's friend. And I'm probably as guilty as, as many on this call that are first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Can you touch a little bit more on that for us? You got it. Basically, all technology is not your brain's friend. Not really. I mean, your brain was really evolved in a time when technology didn't exist. And of course, technology has changed more in the last seven years than in all the history of the earth. And that's stressful for the brain. It's trying to keep up with that level of acceleration of innovation uh, and that level of overstimulation. You're constantly overstimulated, you know, and, and those technologies, they emit a blue light, which perturbs the pituitary gland that pituitary gland is moderated by the hypothalamus, which of course, you know, is, is part of your emotional and stress response in your brain. And the pituitary gland decides things like how much, uh, you know, sleep you're going to get and how hungry you are and uh, how much water you need and, you know, and how happy you are. And so I'm simplifying, maybe oversimplifying, but those technologies really do 
mess with your brain in a way that you, you know, just can't, you can't anticipate. You'll feel the effects of later. There's, you know, long-term ramifications for that. The, the hypothalamus pituitary and adrenal axis is an axis that goes through your body and connects brain and body through chemical messengers. And technology and specifically your mobile device, which you keep close to your face and emits this blue light, uh, it is the technology that will do the most damage effectively to that HPA axis. And that HPA axis is the primary axis involved in biofeedback loops. And so when you hear about things like dopamine feedback loops or biofeedback loops, it's the HPA axis that is communicating that within and through the body and vice versa back to the brain. And so that, that blue light and all technology, really, including your television and your computer monitor, your tablets, it wouldn't matter, they are all interfering effectively with the normal cycling of the HPA axis. And the HPA axis is what also moderates your circadian rhythms, which that 24-hour cycle that decides light versus dark and day versus night, and therefore sleep versus waking hours. Uh, and it perturbs your ultradian cycles as well, which are the 90-minute cycles, and, and we think somewhere between 90 and 120-minute cycles that your brain operates on throughout the circadian rhythms. And so you can imagine then that what seems like such a benign thing is to wake up and start with your mobile device in your face uh, and, and the opposite end of the day when people say, well, I'm just going to go to bed, but you know what, I'm just going to answer a couple of emails in bed from this device, it's messing with your HPA. And so it's also therefore messing with your ability to sleep, produce melatonin, which of course sounds melatonin, serotonin, they are, they're linked, they sound alike for a reason. Uh, and so how happy we are and how much sleep we get are intrinsically linked uh, because they're sister hormones to one another. And then there's another factor there altogether, and mobile devices in particular are very challenging uh, also because from a psychological perspective, so less about the neurochemistry and more about the fact that I often liken your mobile device to an infant that never grows up. So as you, if you're a parent, you know the experience of having to listen for your infant to cry. You're kind of always attuned to it subconsciously. Even when you're doing something else, you're sharing your brain, listening for that baby. And what happens is that you know that baby's gonna need you and so you know, you're know you on high alert. But as your child grows, you sort of, you, you stop sharing your brain so much. Well, it's, your mobile device is like an infant that never grows up. It will eventually need you and you know that. And so it, you're constantly sharing your brain. At, again, maybe not the conscious experience of doing this, but, you, but subconsciously you're sharing your brain with that mobile device no matter where it is. And so one of my pieces of advice around mobile devices is certainly not to start or to end your day with it. But the second piece uh, is especially through moments when you need to concentrate and you really are uh, wanting to have your full faculties and, and cognitive capacity at your disposal. I often say put your mobile device in another room because many different studies have shown that even when that device is off, so it's not receiving or transmitting, it's not a function of the electronics even, your brain is sharing space with it, thinking, you know, I might have to monitor it subconsciously because it might need me at some point. And so people will tweet me afterward and say, 
it sounds like the craziest thing. I put that mobile device in the other room and I locked it in a drawer in two offices over and I was able to focus. Finally, I was able to get, you know, what I was floundering to get done. I was suddenly able to give all of my cognitive faculties to that task and get it done in record time. And so, yeah, my advice around mobile device, all technology truly and certainly for your kids, you know, is that is that your brain is really not designed to interact with it the way that we would like and and it's having a hard time it, there's just no way your brain can can adjust as fast as technology is advancing and in that blue light yeah it does perturb how it is that your brain functions and creates neurochemistry that makes you happy and functional and productive and motivated so if we think about sleep as one way to feed the body and can't be understated as you say food itself and, and feeding your body and by extension, your brain. We've talked a little bit about that. And, you know, I think I've read more articles in the last three or four months about, you know, are you snacking more now that you're working from home? What are you putting into your body? Every magazine is talking about things like brain food. Is this something that we need to be thinking about? And, and maybe as a follow-up to that question, is, is, is brain food a real thing? It's such a great question. You know, we often say you are what you eat. Um, but I also advocate that you eat what you are uh, and your brain, as an example, is mostly fat and then protein and there are no carbohydrates in there, right, except for flowing through your bloodstream uh, in the form of glycogen and glucose uh, and it's a lot of water. And so, you know, when we look to, well, what is sort of ideal brain food? It's for me, it's a composition, not just of the macronutrients, which is fat, protein, and carbohydrates, but also a real focus on micronutrients. And I know you and I, Mark, have, have spoken about this, uh, but what I really advocate is that instead of, you know, we've seen, you've seen, if you've ever watched anything around nutritional information, diet information, you'll hear all kinds of different diets problematize fat in the early 90s and then problematize carbohydrates and so on. And instead of focusing on that, uh, so Certainly for weight loss, you know, I'm not really focused on weight loss. I mean, if we look at performance, and if you think of yourself as a high-performance athlete and your brain is kind of a, its own its own machine that you have to fuel, you really want to be focused on what the ketogenics often advocate, but that's the idea that you're getting sort of equal calories from fat and protein. Sometimes people have a keto certainly advocates for more fat, and, if, and a very distant distant third macronutrient would be carbohydrates. And so what you eat with that, that's, I sort of, when people say brain foods, well, you know, it really depends about what you're, what you need and, and kind of what you're lacking. But for me, it's more around, well, make sure that you're eating what you are because that's what, that's how your brain will replenish itself and how your body will replenish itself. Now that's not to say that you don't need carbohydrates, but in good news, just about everything we eat has carbohydrates and specifically everything we eat that's nutrient dense, you will find fairly high in carbohydrate, high enough, certainly enough to, to fuel your body and your brain. And what I mean by micronutrients or nutrient density is the things like vitamins and minerals and so on. But if instead of focusing on calories or even on macronutrients like fat, protein, carbs, if instead what you focus on is the food in front of you being high in micronutrients, high in its nutrient density, what you will find is that in actual fact, it was made, you know, God made it perfectly. It was in fact made high in fat, relatively, you know, high in protein, and then 
typically with a good amount of carbohydrates. And so if you look to the vegetables in front of you, you'll see very high levels of micronutrients, fruits, of course, nuts, high in fat, high in micronutrients, uh, to some extent, some protein and always some carbohydrate. And so the stuff that's jam packed within vitamins and minerals that you need to manufacture the neurochemistry that you need to be happy and productive, those are typically the right formulation for both brain and body. And then of course, it can't be overstated that the inverse is true, that when we start to look at processed foods, you know, I used the example at the MSN of a big slab of, of steak as an example. Well, what are we looking at? We're looking at high fat, sure. We're looking at some protein, sure. But we're looking at very few in the way of micronutrients. So it's not nutrient dense food. And so, you know, a lot of, depends on who you talk to, they'd say, well, isn't it good to have protein and fat? It is, except for that there's not anything else in there. There's a little bit of iron, you know, there's a couple of B vitamins, but basically it's not nutrient dense food. It's not micronutrient dense food. And so that's where I would, you know, ignore the South Beach diet, ignore the zone, ignore the big macronutrients, and instead focus on the micronutrients and jam packing as much micronutrients into everything that you can eat. And two things will happen. One is you have a lot more energy uh, and you will be giving your body and your brain what it requires to manufacture the chemicals it needs, but also, which of course increase your energy and all that, but also you'll be satiated quicker. And so people often tell me that when they start eating the brain food, which is not any particular food, I'm not advocating one food over another, if what you start to do is you start to focus on micronutrient consumption and therefore absorption, what you start to find is that you're satiated faster, you have more energy longer, you aren't consumed with thoughts of food, you don't have these surges in insulin that keep you running back to the fridge or to the cupboard. Uh, and so people do find that they are able to, they're more motivated to exercise, they feel better as they exercise, their recovery is faster, their brain is, is clearer and more capable of, of focusing, and weight loss comes easier if it's something that you're trying to do. And of course, you got to eat what you are, not just become what you eat. Um, water is really important, hydration throughout the day. And so, you know, that's typically when we see people with a headache, actually they're dehydrated, You've probably heard before that by the time you are, you feel thirst, you're dehydrated at the cellular level, um, and those cells are body cells, not brain cells. By the time you're dehydrated at the body cellular level, your brain has already given up two liters of water at least, and so your brain about ten, somewhere between eight and ten volumetric liters of water, you know, you've you've depleted it significantly, and you can't focus and you can't manufacture the right neurochemicals, and you can't be productive or motivated if you're not properly hydrated. And, and there again, by the time you're feeling thirst, it's too late if your brain has already given up because it takes second fiddle in waking hours to the body. It's already given up liters of water to your body. Uh, and so I advocate you know, not doing big gulping, big gulps once you feel that thirst, but sip all day long, even if you don't feel thirsty, because that's in fact ideal. And that will also help with your 
Sipping rather than gulping will also help with absorption of the micronutrients that are required uh, and will help with, you know, making sure that everything's kind of functioning the way it should for both brain and body uh, and, and producing, you know, not just a happy person, but a person who is physically more capable. Um, and so the whole system starts to work a lot better when we focus on, you know, proper levels of hydration consistently throughout the day and those micronutrient dense foods. I'm glad you just justified the gigantic water container that's been on my desk for the last several months. For someone who's listening to our call, there's such great information and context here about what's happening to us and, and the need to be more self-aware. But for someone who says, I've, I've heard everything Dr. Britt is saying, and boy, there's a lot of things here I probably should be changing. These are, these are big, big things that I have to restructure my day or my week. What's some of your advice to break this down into maybe smaller pieces or chunks to, to get someone started on thinking more about how to actually take action? You know, where I like to start um, is with one thing, right? I call it the rule of one, but it, it's effectively to say, listen, do less, not more. And that's sort of a fundamental rule of thumb, both from a psychological perspective as well as from a neuroscience perspective, because the brain, it doesn't multitask, right? That's a fallacy. Like that we don't actually do multiple things at once. Your brain is not a parallel processor. It is a, like a singular processor, a serial processor. And what that means also in life is that when you look at, well, where should I start on this? My goodness, this is a lot of information. Don't do it all at once. Uh, you know, start with the thing that you want to do that may be an easy in or an easy or quick win or that you have a very high priority around. Uh, start there and, and experiment with it and work it out for yourself because everyone is different. Like I often, you know, I joke that this is a, it's, as much as it's all science, it's kind of an art too, in the sense that I'm, you know, we're painters and I'm giving you a bunch of colors in your palette, but how you paint your painting, that's going to be up to you. What colors you choose, that'll be up to you. But, but before you start with the full complement of colors, let's say on your palette, I say, start with one and see how that works for you. Uh, you know, what do you want to work on? And then that kind of extends to, to, not only cognitive prioritization of, you know, what do you want to get done, what matters to you, uh, but it also really helps then with conscientiousness and, and mindfulness and sort of a, what we consider to be cognitive deliberateness around how you do what you do and therefore why you do it. And we think that, you know, there are basically four resources in the world, right? Time, money, relationships, and purpose. And you can't find purpose if your brain is constantly toggling between a whole series of disconnected priorities. And so really that priority is where I would say, Mark, you know, start with the one thing uh, that you want to work on, see how it goes, and then ladder up from there and go to the next thing after you've mastered the first, uh, whatever that is. Are you going to work on diet? Are you going to work on sleep? Are you going to work on exercise? Are you going to work on mindfulness, conscientiousness? You know, there's just, there's all kinds of factors here. And then from there, you ladder up and you reorganize your day and you realize you've got to work with your ultradian cycle the right way. Uh, your circadian rhythm is like no other. So you've got to think about your own sleep patterns for yourself, as well as your own wakeful patterns and your eating patterns and your exercise patterns and your productive patterns. And so, you know, these are things I encourage people to sort of think about more deliberately, like less conventionally and more 
purposely for yourself uh, and experiment with and then you know focus kind of on the first the, the heaviest and highest priority thing for you and and see how it goes and once you've mastered that you know you've got to walk before you run baby steps and so once you've mastered the first thing you'll feel this highest level of self-confidence and competency right this idea that the opposite of an expectancy violation you'll feel masterful and then as you work through it that masterfulness will start to bleed into other priorities and other ways of improving yourself and improving the use of your brain um, and I'll say that we do a really great research that shows that it doesn't matter where you start it just matters that you start and a more conscientious focus on your brain actually has your brain being more conscientious about you and functioning better for you um, and so you know it's almost as if your brain is like a three-year-old without supervision and the minute that you start paying attention to it and actually conscientiously and concertedly operating it and considering it and working with it as opposed to convention or you know non-consciously working against it then it it knows you're paying attention to it and it starts to perform better and i could show it to you in an fmri where i say okay go about a regular you know regular activity let's say that you do on autopilot and, and certain parts of your brain will light up and then i say okay now do that same activity again but with your brain in mind conscientiously thinking about the fact that your brain is operating, you are operating your brain and your brain is operating you and different and new parts of your brain also light up that basically show us that your brain is now more performative, it's more functional, it's more motivated, it's more productive and all because you consciously made a decision to be mindful about it and conscientious about it and so for that reason I hope it's music to people's ears to hear there's no right way, there's no wrong way uh, and it doesn't matter where you start or what you start with, your, your performance and your cognitive and neuroscientific performance will improve. There's so much to think about for us as individuals. Um, Dr. Brynn, we will definitely have people on this call that have responsibility for employees or will manage teams. To sort of close off with one final question for you, leadership has been tested during this pandemic and this environment. Um, these are things that leaders probably should be aware of even in normal times. But as we think about leading people or, or you know, being a supervisor of people right now, based on all this information you've shared with us today, what's some of your advice for leaders to be more you know, cognizant and aware of what's happening to their teams and how they're behaving as well as, as leaders understanding what, what it is you're, you're trying to illustrate? It's a billion dollar question mark and it's a great one. I think, you know, one of the, the truth is when we think about ourselves as leaders, again, doing it in the most conscientious way possible, is there's no blanket answer because the real question is what do they need from me right now in order to feel mobilized to do their work and you know to manage these VUCA circumstances, right? Manage the volatility, the uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And you know, that I think if you if you approach your people less with answers and more with questions like this great quote I heard recently it says your you know the quality of your life is directly proportional to the quality of the questions that you ask and this includes leadership I think you know as you and management I think as you approach the people that you are responsible for directing especially from a neuroscience perspective a big proponent that before you can assert a directive or any guidance you really do have to ask the question and we do have really great research that shows that the more you listen, even if, and this is going to sound awful, but even if you're gapping out and you're really, you're tuning them out and you're not really 
you know, even really paying attention, people will feel heard. And that's important for people to calm their nervous systems and to be able to cope at the emotional level with the VUCA circumstances they find themselves in. And so starting with questions is very helpful for uh, really getting a sense of what it is that they need from you right now, which will change on a daily basis and it'll change between people you manage, of course. I mean, you know, what one person needs is going to be different in any given day than, than the next employee. Uh, or direct report, but the idea that you're starting with the question, that gives you time to figure out what they need. It also gives them time to feel heard, and that is very important for uh, them being able to calm their nervous systems and get done what they have to get done. And so, you know, as you think about kind of empowering people to cope for themselves, because you can't do that for them, like they have to want it, they have to do it for themselves, to do their jobs for themselves here again. You know, I hear from a lot of managers who say, I've never picked up more slack in my life. I'm starting to feel very micromanagey because I'm not watching the work get done. Um, and that, I think, is really a, a product of, you know, first of all, just, I mean, evidence thereof that, that those people aren't, aren't able to focus and they're not able to manage their own kind of neurochemistry in order to calm down enough to actually be able to get the stuff that they want to get done. And so, you know, that's really what we're in the job of doing. It sounds crazy, but you're really in the job of calming their nervous system long enough to give them the resources if you are a gatekeeper that they need and otherwise have them feel heard so that even if you don't do anything with it, that's what the research shows, is that even if you have no advice, no guidance, no extra resources, you have no answers, what the research shows is the more you listen, the longer in that conversation that you listen, uh, the more heard they will feel and then therefore the, the calmer they will feel. And that is how to manage a brain in chaos during VUCA circumstances. Um, and so, I mean, I say start with, you know, as a basic kind of key takeaway or applicable, well, what can I do here? Start with questions and see about how that helps with their performance and with them feeling calmer and with them more capable of managing themselves and therefore their workload. I think if there was one more thing I would say is to manage expectations of, of yourself and of them. You know, the truth is, is that when the brain is in a sort of a more chaotic space, it's contextlessness, it's in a VUCA circumstance, you know, that is when you really have to whittle it down to the highest priorities. And, and the rule of one applies here too, where it is to say, what's the one thing you want to get done today? Or what's the one thing I expect of that direct report? Um, because you can't give them a laundry list, just like they can't give themselves a laundry list and then come away disappointed. If you do the same thing, you will be disappointed. And so, you know, it's sort of about around listening, asking the right questions, listening, and then, and then, you know, helping co-create what, what is the top priority? What's the one thing for the day? Uh, what is, you know, what the rule of one, like, what is that one thing that we want to focus on for the day? Because then everyone has a win, right? You watch pro as, a, as a manager, you watch progress happen. The direct report feels like they, most people have pleasing instincts. So they feel like they've accomplished what they needed to accomplish. They feel accomplished and satisfied with their day. Um, and no one's had any expectancy violations. So everyone is feeling sort of squared away in terms of, you know, what they were, what they were hoping for. And then, yeah, you know, there's been enough kind of 
listening happening and co-creation of priorities and conscientiousness around it that you know people's nervous systems are calmer and they're more capable of coping with kind of the extra stuff that everyone is feeling now and, and will continue to feel as they work from home because at home there are so many you know even if even if we have a vaccine and we're still working from home i mean we'll be in a circumstance where your dog is at your feet and your kid is asking a question and someone's knocking on the door and there's just so many distractions at home that that it's not a great place often for people to be able to focus so um, I mean, those are kind of the two key takeaways is start with the questions and manage, manage expectations. I mean, what's the one thing? Well, Dr. Bruna, as you've talked about time, time even has a premium on podcasts, unfortunately, but these subjects are just so important. And, you know, it's almost uh, to some degree unfortunate that we're talking about it in, during a pandemic in a not so normal time, because it's clearly just as important when we're not going through something like what we're experiencing right now. But I really wanted to thank you for these insights. And you definitely have busted some myths and challenged conventional wisdom and, and just really happy that you were able to join us. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. In the meantime, I encourage all of our listeners to follow Dr. Bryn on her social media platforms. And as well, you can find her content directly on drbryn.com. And as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, to look for her upcoming book, WFH, a brain-based perspective for redesigning your workday to feel more motivated and get more done. This has been another edition of On The Money. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption or option changes or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated.